0: Section 32 of the Underground Railroad, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Underground Railroad, Part 4 by William Still. Section 32 The Case of Euphemia Williams claimed as a fugitive slave under the Fugitive Slave Law, after having lived in Pennsylvania for more than twenty years. Scarcely had the infamous statute been in existence six months, ere the worst predictions of the friends of the slave were fulfilled in different northern states. It is hardly too much to say that Pennsylvania was considered wholly unsafe to nine-tenths of her colored population. The kidnapper is fully shown in the case of Rachel and Elizabeth Parker, as he appeared on the soil of Pennsylvania, doing his vile work in the dead of night, entering the homes of unprotected females and children. Therefore, the case of Euphemia Williams will serve to represent the milder form of kidnapping in open day, in the name of the law, by professed Christians, in the city of brotherly love and the home of William Penn february sixth eighteen fifty one, Euphemia Williams, the mother of six children, the youngest at the breast, was arrested in the upper part of the city (Philadelphia) and hurried before Edward D. Ingraham, a United States Commissioner, upon the charge of being a fugitive from labor. She was claimed by William t j Purnell, of Worcester county, Maryland, who admitted that she had been away from him for twenty two years or since eighteen twenty nine her offspring were born on the soil of pennsylvania and the eldest daughter was seventeen years of age euphemia was living in her own house and had been a member of church in good and regular standing for about seventeen years and was about forty years of age when the arrest was made euphemia had just risen from her bed and was only partly dressed when a little after daylight several persons entered her room and arrested her murder murder was cried lustily and awakened the house her children screamed lamentably and her eldest daughter cried they've got my mother they've got my mother for god's sake save me cried euphemia to a woman in the second story who was an eye witness to this monstrous outrage but despite the piteous appeals of the mother and children the poor woman was hastened into a cab and borne to the marshal's office through the vigilance of j m McKim and passmore williamson a writ of habeas corpus returnable forthwith was obtained at about one o'clock the heart-broken mother was surrounded by five of her children three of whom were infants it was a dark and dreadful hour When her children were brought into the room where she was detained, great drops of sweat standing on her face plainly indicated her agony. By mutual arrangement between the claimants and the prisoner's counsel, the hearing was fixed for the next day at the hour of three o'clock. According to said arrangement, at three o'clock, Euphemia was brought face to face with her claimant, William T. J. Purnell. The news had already gone out that the trial would come off at the time fixed, hence a multitude were on hand to witness the proceedings in the case. The sympathy of anti-slavery ladies was excited, and many were present in the courtroom to manifest their feelings in behalf of the stricken woman. The eloquent David Paul Brown, the terror of slave- hunters, and William S. Pierce, Esq.s, appeared for euphemia R. C. McMurtry, Esq., for the claimant mr mcmurtry in the outset arose and said that it was with extreme regret that he saw an attempt to influence the decision of this case by tumult and agitation the sympathy shown by so many friendly ladies was not a favorable sign for the slaveholder notwithstanding mr mcmurtry said that he would prove that mahala sometimes called mahala purnell was born and bred a slave of dr george w purnell of worcester county maryland who was in the habit of hiring her to the neighbors, and while under a contract of hiring, she escaped, with a boy with whom she had taken up, belonging to the person who hired her. The present claimant claimed her as the administrator of Dr. George W. Purnell. In order to sustain this claim, many witnesses and much positive swearing were called forth. Robert F. Bowen, the first witness, swore that he knew both Mahala and her master perfectly well, that he had worked as a carpenter in helping to build a house for the latter and also had hired the former directly from her owner definite time and circumstances were all harmoniously fixed by this leading witness one of the important circumstances which afforded him ground for being positive was as he testified on cross-examination that he was from home at a camp meeting when she ran away our camp-meetings said the witness are held in the last of august or the first of september the year i fix by founding it upon knowledge the year before she ran away i professed religion i have something at home to fix the year she was with me a part of a year i hired her for the year eighteen forty eight as a house-servant i hired her directly from dr george w purnell when she ran away i proceeded after her I advertised in Delaware in written advertisements in Georgetown, Milford, and Millsboro, and described her and the boy, her general features. I have not the advertisement, and can't tell how she was described. Dr. George Purnell united with me in the advertisement. I followed her to Delaware City, that's all I have done since, about inquiring after them. I came, after twenty-two years' absence, to seek my own rights and as an evidence for my friend. I have not seen her more than once since she ran away until she was arrested. I saw her two or three times in court. I saw her first in a wretched-looking room at Fifth and Germantown Road. It was yesterday morning. It was the evening before at Congress Hall. I arrived here last Tuesday a week. A man told me where she was. I begged the court, Here Mr. McMurtry interposed an objection to his mentioning the person. The court, however, said the question could be put. WITNESS I pledged not to tell the name. The person signed her name, Louisa Truitt. The information was got by letter. The reason I did not tell, because I thought she might be murdered. I have not the letters, and can't tell the contents. The letter that I received required a pledge that I would not tell i was directed to send my letter to the post office without any definite place the representative of louisa truett was a man i saw him in market street between third and fourth at taylor and paulding's store in the course of last week i was brought into contact with the representative of louisa by appointment in the letter to get the information i never heard him tell his name he was neither colored nor white we call them with us mixed blood I should take you to be colored, said the witness to Mr. Brown. I suppose he lives somewhere up there. I saw him at my room the next morning. I did not learn from him who wrote the letter. He did not describe the person of the woman in the letter written to me, only her general appearance. Purnell said he burnt the letter. Mr. Brown demanded the letter, or the proof of its destruction. I never wrote myself, but my friend Mr. Henry did, he said so. I never received a letter. It was written to Robert J. Henry. Part of the letter was written to me, but not directed to me. The Louisa Truitt, who wrote, stated that, for the information, he wanted one hundred dollars for one of the fugitives. He was referred to the store of Taylor and Paulding, and Mr. Henry would meet him there. When I got to the store, some of the concern let Mr. Henry know that a man wanted to see him. I heard this at the store. The man was there. He was a mulatto man, middle-aged and middling tall. He is not here, that I know of. Can't tell when I last saw him. His name I understood to be Gloucester. Under the severe cross-examination that the witness had been subjected to under D.P. Brown, he became very faint and called for water. Large drops of sweat stood upon his forehead, and he was obliged to sit down lest he should fall down take a seat said mr brown tauntingly and enjoy yourself while i proceed with my interrogations but the witness was completely used up and was allowed to withdraw to another room where fresh air was more plentiful the cause of the poor slave woman was greatly strengthened by this failure another witness named zachariah bowen for the claimants swore positively that he knew the prisoner well that she had been hired to his brother for three years by Dr. Purnell, whose slave she was. Also he swore that he knew her parents, who were slaves to the said Dr. P., that he last saw her in 1827, etc. On cross-examination he swore thus, I last saw her in 1827. She was about sixteen or seventeen. She was about an ordinary size, not the smallest size nor the largest. She was neither thick nor thin. There was nothing remarkable in her more than is common, nothing in her speech. She was about the same color as the woman here. I never saw a great deal of change in a nigger from sixteen to thirty-five or forty. Sometimes they grow fatter and sometimes leaner. As to recognizing her in Philadelphia, he had not the slightest difficulty. He went on to swear that he first saw her in a cab in the city. I knew her yesterday. If you could see the rest of the family, you could pick her out yourself in thirty. I knew her by her general favor, and have no particular mark. I would not attempt to describe features. Her favor is familiar to me. I never saw any marks upon her. Here Mr. Brown said he would not examine this witness further until he had concluded the examination of the witness who had become sick. The Court then adjourned till nine o'clock the next morning. The avenues to the Court were filled with anxious persons, and in the front and rear of the State House the crowd was very great. End of section thirty two.